This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Proverbs 5. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps follow the path to Sheol, she does not ponder the path of life, her ways wander and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go to the house of a foreigner, and at the end of your life you groan. When your flesh and body are consumed, and you say, how I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed. And rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Well, good morning. My name is Josh, one of the pastors here, and uh, glad to be with you this morning. Uh, From now until Easter, uh, we are teaching on the nature of sin, what it is and how it works, what are its effects, what types there are and ultimately how we can be healed from it. And in particular, we're looking at uh, what has often been called in the history of the church, uh, the seven deadly sins. And we're talking about these things, not because we're fixated on rules and laws, but we are, on the other hand, very concerned about life and joy and relationships. And as we saw over the past few weeks, sin has a way of poking holes in our life. Right? Creating holes in our life through which the, uh, the abundant life, the good life that Jesus talks about, has a way of leaking out. Or to use another image, the image uh, that the Apostle Peter gives it, sin wages war against our souls. It wrecks our relationships. It keeps us from God. And so that's why we're taking time uh, from now until Easter uh, to talk about these things. And uh, the first week we talked about anger. Last week, we took up the subject of gluttony, and today we come to the third of the seven deadly sins, lust. And probably some are thinking, right? Ah, here they go again, right? Christians 
obsessed with talking about sex. But, you know, what's interesting is that for most of the moral theologians, lust is not at the top of the list. It's actually lower than things like greed and wrath and envy and pride. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, the sins of the flesh are bad, but they're the least bad of all the sins. All the worst sins are spiritual The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing and patronizing and backbiting, the pleasures of power, of hatred. For there are two things inside me competing within the human self with which I must try to become. They are the animal self and the diabolical self. The diabolical self is worse. That is, there are uh, what Lewis is calling diabolical things. That is things you were never created for. You were never created to despise others or steal from them or cheat them or crush them. You were not made for that. You were, however, created with a capacity for sexual desire. Lust is just a twisting, a warping of that. So lust is not the worst of sins, but it might be the most popular And here in Proverbs chapter 5, we have words from a father speaking to his son, a dad imparting wisdom to his son, his son coming of age. And though the context is fathers and sons, I really believe this is a live issue for men and women alike. One of the things about the seven deadly sins, one of the reasons they're called the seven deadly sins is the universality of the temptation And so two questions we'll try to get to this morning as we talk about it. We're just going to try to ask and answer, what is lust first? And then secondly, how do we fight against it? What is lust? And then how do we fight against it? And I would say here, just by preface, I'm not going to be able to say everything that can be said or maybe even should be said about this topic. I'm going to try to focus in on the book of Proverbs and what it has to teach us with the time constraints that we have. But I'm also not going to be able to say everything that could be said in any context because I want to have a frank conversation about these things, a frank discussion. But I also want to be aware of the fact that we have, you know, a wide range of ages within our space together this morning as we do on any given Sunday morning. So I want to bear that in mind. So we are going to have a frank discussion, but hopefully a PG discussion as we go through it. All right. So let's let's think about it first. What is lust? Now, it's worth noting right off the bat that our culture is not convinced that this is actually a problem. Our culture is not convinced that this is actually a problem. Lust is not thought of so much as a sin as it is a punchline uh, in our culture. When uh, Jimmy Carter was running for president, this was back in, uh, what, 1976, he was interviewed and asked about some of his flaws, and he said that he was sorry to say that he had looked on women with lust in his heart which was roundly mocked in popular culture, even 1976. You know, poor, uh, regressive Jimmy Carter, that he would think this was somehow a problem. Saturday Night Live had a whole season's worth of jokes, you know, based on that interview that Carter had done. For some, lust is a joke. For others in our culture, it's a virtue. Simon Blackburn, the professor of philosophy at Cambridge University wrote an essay called In Defense of Lust. And in the essay, he says that uh, the only real problem with lust is that it's gotten a bad rap over the years. We need to rescue lust, he says, from the oppression of the culture that has brought it under. 
Now, uh, we'll read to you just a bit from his article, from his essay. He says, it might seem paradoxical or even indecent to try to speak up for lust, but that's what I shall try to do. We, none of us, would be here without it. So the task I set before myself is to clean off some of the mud, to rescue it from some of the denunciations of the old men of the desert, to deliver it from the pallid and envious confessors of Rome, the disgust of the Renaissance, to destroy the stocks and pillories of the Puritans, to separate it from other things that we know will drag lust down, and so to lift it from the category of sin to virtue. Now, there are some ways in which that sounds kind of nice. And we live in a culture that celebrates sexuality without boundaries, and so it would certainly be nice not to have to push back against that. But we must remember the warnings about lust being a danger are not something that was invented by the Puritans or or what Blackburn calls the disgust of the Renaissance, but the scriptures themselves warn against the danger of lust. Jesus specifically teaches on lust In his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, he said, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If we are to take Jesus seriously, we have to take this issue seriously. So let's define our terms a little bit as we get into it this morning. First, lust is not to be equated with sexual desire. Lust is not the same thing as sexual desire. And we can say that because the scriptures very clearly celebrate sexual desire as a gift from God. Genesis chapter 2, it says that God created humanity, male and female. He gives them to one another. He says, be fruitful and multiply. They become one flesh. And God says, this is very good. Song of Songs, a long love poem that celebrates physical intimacy between a man and his wife. A whole book of the Bible devoted to this. In the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul tells married people not to deprive physical intimacy from one another. And here in our text, in Proverbs chapter 5, a father speaking to his son, verse 18, says, Rejoice in the wife of your youth. And then there's some rather provocative imagery, and then he goes on to say, be intoxicated always in her love. So the Bible's not down on sex, just the opposite. It celebrates it as something too important not to be treated with care. So lust is not the same thing as sexual desire, but lust is an inordinate desire for somebody or something. Lust is an inordinate desire for somebody or something. The term actually doesn't have a sexual connotation to it, per se, or not all on its own. You can lust for money, right, which is greed. Uh, Gluttony, we talked about last week. Gluttony is a kind of lust for food or drink. The key point is over-desire. The Greek word that sometimes gets translated as lust in the New Testament is epithumia, which means over-desire, compulsion, obsession, a desire that's out of control. And if you look in toward the end of Proverbs 5, verses 20 to 23, 
The father's telling his son, don't go after a woman who's not your wife. You know it's going to be bad for you. You know what it can do. It can wreck your family. It can ruin your marriage. It can ruin your reputation. It can ruin you spiritually, he says. Verse 21, right? This is not just a sin against somebody else or against your family, but it's actually a sin against the Lord. A man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, he says. But it also can imprison you. Verse 22, iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, it says. He is held fast by the cords of his sin. Do you hear the language of being overpowered, taken captive, controlled? Verse 23, he dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he is led astray. You know, some people say that, Sex is just an appetite, right? And like any other appetite, you should try to get it satiated. So if you feel hungry, you eat, you feel thirsty, you know, you drink, you're feeling sexy, you sex, which I think the grammar is wrong on that somehow, but you get the point, right? Some people say that sex is just an appetite, but that seems a little naive to me. Is there any other appetite that gets so obsessive, feels so controlling, that dominates our thoughts like this one. C.S. Lewis says, you know, imagine for a second that you go to another country, right? You're, you're doing some field work in anthropology and you go to a place that you've never been before. You encounter a people you've never encountered before. So you're completely unfamiliar with the local customs. And so when you get there, you begin to study and you observe uh, that these folks are um, always looking at pictures of food all the time. Dorm rooms are plastered with glossy images of ice cream sundaes. And people stay up late at night and get on the internet to look at pictures of apple pie and french fries. And they go to clubs where, to the beat of the music, somebody would slowly remove a cloth to reveal eventually a cheeseburger. Now, Lewis says, if you came across something like this, you conclude that this is a strange practice. And you probably wonder at first, right, does this mean that there's no food available? That's why everybody's minds are on it all the time, right? They don't have access to food. But then if you looked around at the culture and saw that there actually is food everywhere, right, then you would conclude this is a kind of obsession. This is a desire that's out of proportion, And that's the case with our culture when it comes to sex. Lust is an inordinate desire, an over-desire for sex. But third, lust is also a desire that is out of bounds. Verse 15, Proverbs 5 says, Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Now, this is a metaphor for physical intimacy, but what I want you to notice is it doesn't say Water is bad. It doesn't say don't drink water, right? But rather what it says is drink water from your own cistern. In other words, there is a proper place, a proper role for sexual expression, namely within the covenant promises of marriage between a man and a woman. Proverbs 5 is about sexuality out of bounds. That's what's being warned against. Now, why is that the case? Why is there a proper place? Well, the Bible teaches as a whole, right, that sex is something that God has given us. It's ordained as a way for a person to say to somebody else, I belong completely and exclusively to you. In other words, sex comes with it a meaning. It's not just a physical act. But it's, uh, it, it comes 
endued with a meaning, with a, a purpose. It's a way of saying with our bodies what we've said with our vows. I belong to you and exclusively to you. Sex, then, is a kind of covenant renewal, a way of cultivating and symbolizing the unity between a man and a woman in marriage. And so lust, then, is a distortion of this, a twisting of this. Lust is an inordinate desire for sex. It's a sexual desire out of bounds. That's what's being warned against, not only in Proverbs 5, but when we think about it in terms of the seven deadly sins. Well, then what do we do, right, to battle against this? How are we not to be overcome by it? Because the thing, it seems as if everything is stacked up for us to fail in our culture today. How are we not to be overcome by it? And maybe the most straightforward application that we could have from Proverbs 5 this morning is particularly for parents. Parents, talk to your children. I mean, again, straightforward application. Proverbs 5 is a parent talking to their child. In this case, a father talking to his son, right? If you're looking for the most basic of applications today, if you are a parent, we need to be talking to our children. We need to be having these kinds of conversations about important things with children. We can't just assume that they're going to pick this up somehow, whether from Bible reading or from being around church or from youth group. And we certainly know that's not going to be the case in culture as uh, more broadly. And we know that this is likely to be an area of temptation. And so it's our responsibility, parents, to communicate with our children and not just on this topic. Right? Not just on sex and sexuality, but on all kinds of important issues. And just a couple of recommendations or maybe helps for you in uh, that endeavor of talking to your children. Um, just want to make a recommendation of a, a little book. Uh, this is specifically for dads talking with sons. It's by Joel Fitzpatrick. It's, um, it's called Between Us Guys. And the subtitle is Life-Changing Conversations for dads and sons. And uh, it's a book about a lot of things, really great conversation topics. I'll just read to you a few from the table of contents. Here's some of the things that it's encouraging conversations between dads and sons about friendship, about family, about work, about play, about love, generosity, about failure and disappointment, strength, money, girls, sex, speaking up for other people who can't speak up. For themselves. These are the kinds of conversations that we ought to be having. Joel Fitzpatrick, Between Us Guys, is the name of that book. We also offer a class here uh, called Quest at New City, helping to equip parents specifically around this idea of, of sex and sexuality and how to, how, how to um, just have a good handle on uh, a biblical sex ethic and, uh, again, specifically aimed for parents. We just did it in our January theology labs. It'll come up again, hopefully, sometime in the next year as well. We'd love for you to be a part of that. Our student ministry leadership hosts a series of parents' happy hours uh, with some reading on the front end and then the discussion of a whole variety of topics, not just this topic, but all with the idea of equipping parents of teenagers to have significant conversations with their children. So parents... Talk to your children. But more broadly and for everyone, applying this text and this idea to ourselves, how do we do battle against this? Well, first, we just need to take it seriously. We need to take it seriously. How does Proverbs 5 begin? Verse 1, right? Oh, my son, be attentive to wisdom. Incline your ear to understanding. In other words, listen up. This is important stuff. Why? Well, verse three, for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she's as bitter as wormwood, sharp 
as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. You know, the thing about sexual temptation of any kind is it's alluring. It seems sweet, right? It shows us the bait, as one writer says, but it hides the hook. It's alluring like sweet honey, but there are real consequences to sexual immorality. And as you're listening to this this morning, you might be tempted to say, okay, I get that. I get that in the Proverbs 5 sense of things, right? Because this is about, directly, it's about adultery, right? And maybe you're with me on that. You'll say, okay, I get that there's consequences to adultery. Um, You know, families can be wrecked. Hearts can be broken. um, People torn apart from one another. And maybe you can even come so far uh, with me and say, all right, maybe even I get at least conceptually, the idea that sex outside of marriage in general can be a distortion of something that God gives. It can uh, help, it can can confuse or twist the meaning that God gives uh, to to sex. And, And so maybe even sex outside of marriage can cause problems. But maybe you're still thinking, but lust? I mean, is it really that big a deal? I mean, isn't this a victimless crime? And one of the most common assumptions about lust is that nobody gets hurt. But don't be so sure because lust tends to grow. Just look, all sin does actually. But Proverbs 5 is about adultery. But if you turn the page to Proverbs 6, Proverbs 6 verse 25 warns against lust in the heart in the same way that Jesus does in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. And why does Proverbs 6 warn against lust in your heart, not just sinning with your body, but why does Proverbs 6 warn against lust in the heart? And why does Jesus warn against lust in the heart? Well, if, right, if we know that the full-grown plant of adultery or sexual immorality can cause problems and be destructive, then we ought not to be nurturing the seeds of that plant, even in little ways in our hearts, right? If the full-blown act is troublesome and dangerous, right, then the seeds of that can be dangerous as well because when we nurture those, when we water those, when we simply just allow them to grow, they tend to grow. Nobody wakes up one morning and just decides to commit adultery. It's a process. Seeds are nurtured. We ought to be vigilant and battling against it. And listen, even if you don't get burned by the fire, smoke does pretty significant damage all on its own, doesn't it? Frederick Buechner writes this. He says, the trouble is that human beings are so hopelessly psychosomatic in composition that whatever happens to the body happens also to the soul. Whatever happens to the soma, the body, also happens to the soul, the psyche, and vice versa, he says. Pornography, for example, shapes the way you view sex and sexuality. It affects your relationships. Lust affects the way you view other people, are, are other people abstracted bodies for your pleasure? Or are they people to be loved and cared for? Are they images on the internet? Or are these people sisters and brothers, daughters and sons, people made in the very image of God? Lust damages the way we view people. And in that sense, dehumanizes others in our minds and in our hearts. You know what? Lust also damages our own souls. Beekner continues. He says, who's to say who gets hurt and who doesn't? Maybe the injuries are all internal. Maybe it'll be years before the x-rays show up anything. Maybe the only person who gets hurt is you. Naomi Wolf 
wrote what has now become a famous article in New York Magazine. It's probably 17, 18 years ago now. The title of the article is The Porn Myth. And she talks about the ubiquity of sexual images in our culture and the effect that that has on us over time. Here's what she says, a little excerpt from the article. Again, this is Naomi Wolf. She says, uh, the young women who talk to me on campuses about the effect of pornography on their intimate lives speak of feeling that they can never measure up. That if they do not offer what porn offers, they cannot expect to hold a guy. The young men talk about what it's like to grow up learning about sex from porn and how it's not helpful to them in trying to figure out how to be with a real woman. Mostly when I ask about loneliness, a deep, sad silence descends on audiences of young men and young women alike. They know they are lonely together, even when conjoined, and that this imagery is a big part of the loneliness. What they don't know is how to get out, how to find each other again. We need to take this seriously. Lust can do real damage. And we haven't even mentioned the social justice component of this, that porn drives exploitation, porn drives sex trafficking. We need to take it seriously, and then we need to resist. This is one of those exhortation kind of sermons, right? Kind of like when you get to the end of an epistle in the New Testament, there's an exhortation. Well, I want to exhort you. I want to do it recognizing first this is going to be difficult. Resisting temptation in general is a difficult thing, but resisting temptation in this area, particularly over time, is going to be really difficult. But that said, I do want to let you know that Jesus is allowed to ask this of you. Right? This is not beyond the pale for Jesus to ask this of you. First of all, it's not an arbitrary rule. It's not just like God's giving you an arbitrary rule to test your faithfulness. This is for our good. Hopefully, we've been trying to demonstrate that this morning and even what we've been talking about. This is for our good. There's reasons for this. But secondly, Jesus is worthy of doing difficult things in order to follow him. After all, he gave himself for you. He's proved his commitment to you. He's proved his love for you. It's okay for him to ask of us difficult things in our calling to follow him. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, I have on the screen above you there. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is worth doing even difficult things. Now, what does it mean to resist, all right? Well, immediately, right, right now, it might mean fleeing from sexual immorality. That's what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Don't mess around with it. Don't, you know, make compromises. Proverbs chapter 5 verse 8 says the same thing where he says, don't even go to the doorstep of sexual immorality. And so if there are things, even this morning, that the Holy Spirit is bringing to mind as we're thinking about this, if there are things you need to stop doing, let me encourage you to stop doing them. Take radical measures even. Get that internet filter. Don't put yourself in compromising situations. Extricate yourself from compromising situations. Take captive your thoughts. But it's not just immediate things, because again, if this is resistance over time, there need to be long-term strategies too. 
And the biggest one that I know of is just to recognize you need other people. You need to walk this walk with other people. We're here to help each other. That's what the church is for, not to, to help each other, not to shame each other, to help each other along this road. Rebecca DeYoung, in her book on uh, the seven deadly sins in this chapter, she says, the best advice for resisting lust is not to get an internet filter, although you should do that too. She says, the best advice for resisting lust is to have good friends to have good friends because lust thrives on privacy and isolation. It leads to shame, which often keeps us from opening up to others. But lust's remedy requires openness, community, and accountability. You need some people who will walk with you. And this might take place through organic friendships or in people you meet in typical Bible studies or regular groups. But you might also need a specific support group. And if you, are, you do need that, we have some of those here too. You can talk to one of the staff and we can point you to one to help you get connected. Hebrews chapter 4 says, let us run the race with endurance. That's a realistic view of what resistance is going to look like. It's a race and it's a wrong, long race. It's going to take endurance. That image in mind, James Fix wrote a book called The uh, Complete Book of Running. Some of you who are marathoners uh, may know this book. This was written in the late 70s, early 80s, I believe it was, when, uh, when running was not normal, like not a, not, a ca- not a casual endeavor, right? So if you, you know, some of you don't remember this, but even in the 80s growing up, if you saw somebody running on the sidewalk, you assumed somebody was chasing them. Uh, obviously, it's more normal now. But this is a, one of the book, the complete book of running that helped to popularize uh, running as recreation. But in the book, he says, you know, the most difficult thing about long distance races, the most difficult things about running marathons is your mind. Some of you maybe can verify this. Because he says you inevitably get to a point in a race where the f- fatigue is so great that your mind starts to ask you, like, why am I even doing this? Why did I start this race? This is terrible. Why? This is no fun. Why am I even doing this? And Fix says, James Fix says, when he did his first marathon, he had no answer to those questions. And so he just crashed at the end. The last three or four miles were just terrible. He couldn't remember why he was doing this. Your brain plays tricks on you when the heat is on. And so he says, what you've got to do is you've got to memorize the reasons that you love running. Because you're going to get in those last few miles, mile 22 and 23 and 24 and 25, and you're going to just not uh, want to do it anymore. And so you have to memorize the reasons why you're doing this so you can recite back to yourselves, right, the reason why you still are going to do this race, even though it's no fun in the moment. And he says you actually may even come to a time where you can't remember the things you've recited. And so in that moment, you've got to say, I don't know why I'm doing this, but I'll remember when I get to the end. Which is a good strategy. Look, there's going to be times where the heat is on. There's going to be times where temptation is alluring. There's going to be times where you, it feels so difficult that you're not going to know even why you're trying to resist. And that's when you got to recite to yourself that Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. And you might need other people to remind you of that as well. And then lastly, I just want to, Remember, right, remind you of one other thing. Jesus welcomes sinners. Some of you are, I would bet, feeling pretty awful this morning. Maybe you're thinking, I've got a long sexual history. It's pretty sordid, the things that I've done. 
Maybe it's the things that have been done to you. And you're wondering, is there a place here for me? And let me say, yes, there is a place here for you. You know, if you look at the family tree of Jesus in Matthew chapter one, you notice some pretty interesting things. It's Rahab, the prostitute, David, the adulterer, Tamar, the victim. Is there a place for you in the family of God? Yes. There's a story in the gospel of John where an adulterous woman is brought before Jesus and everybody is watching. What's he going to say to this woman? And you know what he says? He says, I won't condemn you. And then he says, go and sin no more. He called sin, sin. He didn't downplay it. He didn't act like it was no big deal. But he says, you know what? I'm not going to pick up the stones to throw at you because I actually came to take the stones. I came to stand in your place. I came to suffer so that you can be forgiven. You know, the church is a place for sinners and strugglers. In fact, that's the only people it's for because that's who Jesus welcomes. He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And that is good news for us all. Would you pray with me? And we're going to continue to worship this morning. Father, we cast ourselves on the mercy of Jesus this morning. We're so grateful for the love and grace that's offered to us in the gospel. We're grateful for the, the positive sexual ethic that is given to us in the scriptures. Would you help us to understand it and to appreciate it and to grow into it? And Lord, would you forgive us when we fail? Would you pick us up when we fall? Would you help us to be a community of grace for others who struggle? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.